Last week, as you recall, one of the things that I, uh, I mentioned was, everybody see me okay? I think I'm right in the right in the spot of that light. So, anyway, one of the things that um, that I encouraged you to do last week was to go away in the interim and uh, read a psalm. Now, it wasn't a homework assignment, and I specifically wasn't going to test you on it or ask you to turn in a paper on the psalm that you read. But um, uh, anybody have anything they want to share about that? or a psalm that you read, or something you got, or anything like that? Remember, we're in the small room now, so this is a sharing chamber. Anybody? I'll give you a minute to let that settle. Psalm that you read? Marty? Good. See, there are some blessings living under compulsion. Hi, I'm Norma. Um, I've been blessed. I'm not homeless anymore, but when I was homeless, I used to live on the uh, railroad tracks on Galvez and Selby. And sometimes I'd be walking um, at night, and it was real scary and dangerous, and this would go through my head, even when I walked through the death, the dark valley of death, I will not be afraid. Mm -hmm. And by the grace of God, I never got raped or mugged out there. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? I read um, Psalm 84, which, I mean, it's blessings throughout. I mean, it starts out, my soul longs with things for the courts of the Lord. Um, but this one, verse 10, is for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a song with, that's about that. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there is a, as we talked about last week, there is, there's a certain timelessness to the Psalms that, that helps to put our feet back in, uh, in, on, you know, solid ground on proper perspective. There's just something about knowing that people, um, you know, thousands of years ago were experiencing the same, experiencing the same sorts of, uh, feelings and emotions and anybody else need an outline by the way Got them? no no okay anyone else 
Okay. Well, one of the things that we, um, uh, this is a little bit more of a, a housekeeping issue here. On page, um, I don't even know what page it is on your copy because I have a different outline, but in your handouts, for those of you who perhaps uh, might find the Bibles uh, difficult to read in the light, there is uh, a side-by-side -side version of Psalm 32. This is the psalm we're going to be studying over the next two weeks. The, um, as you see there, the left side is the New King James, and the right side is the New Living. Seven. What page? Seven. Seven. Okay, great. Okay. So that's there. Um, we'll be working from there. And as I was joking with Marty earlier, I don't have the big Bible hands, and I have my study Bible with me, so I, there's no way I can uh, hold that thing else. So I'm reading from this too. So if you see me looking down, it's not that I'm, uh, I'm not taking it from the Bible. Okay. Uh, any other questions that anybody who was here last week has about some of the stuff we covered? We covered a lot of territory looking at different types of psalms. We, we concluded with a quote from a, a book written by a, a, a monk named Thomas Merton where he talked about the cheapening of praise. We're going to touch a little bit on that same general theme tonight. So any questions or anything anybody had you thought about after, um, after last week? Okay. Psalm um, 32 that we're going to study over the next two weeks is, uh, is twofold. Number one, it's a penitential psalm. And as we see there, it's a, there is a talk about a confession of sin to God, acknowledgement and acceptance of forgiveness. That theme we're going to really hit on tonight. And restoration to the type of relationship God wants to have. This is in your handout. It's at what the beginning. Penitential? Um, coming from the, the, the term penance, which means to atone for uh, a transgression or a sin. So the, the whole, but a, a penitential stance, if you will, in the old time uh, tradition would mean that I, I acknowledge who I am and what I'm all about to God. I just come, you know, who I am, sinful with my transgression, be it a sin or something, before God, and I'm willing to put myself and lay myself at God's mercy and then accept what God has for me. So that is called penitential. And back in old church tradition, there are a lot of what, were, what would be called penitential rites. And these are things that people would do to do penance for their sins or to, in a sort of a physical way, demonstrate to God their... Um, their desire to repent of their sinfulness. And these might include... Um, these might include going out to the desert to like a, a little prayer hut and spending a day or two out there just in solitude, you know, really, really focusing on one's life. There are many, many things. They could be, uh, you know, an office of prayers, what's called an office of prayers, a set of prayers that you might pray over a series of days or weeks. Um, so there are a lot of different forms that the church, speaking globally, has developed over the centuries that would be called penitential but it's in that spirit a place where we reject what we've done how we've transgressed against God and look to come back to that relationship so we'll see that in Psalm 32 the second is uh, it is also a wisdom psalm uh, King David opens with that and we're going to look at that um, uh, you will see the source of the wisdom I just wanted to put that back uh, back out there so we would uh, 
would remember what the, uh, what the specific uh, tone of, of Psalm 32 is. Okay, I'm going to read the first two versions. I'm going to read it out of the, uh, the New King James. This is Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And again, the, the NLT is over there just so if you want to get a different sense of what, what is being said. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, in the, in the Old Hebrew, the word here that they're using for blessed means to be happy, or be happy. So, we could translate it to see, happy is he, happy is she, happy is the person whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin. Happy is the person to whom God does not impute iniquity. So, that's the, that's the sense of this word. And as we start talking about and exploring what what David was trying to get at here in Psalm 32, we're going to definitely see that David is going to be really happy that, you know, he's describing this state in his life. And any of us who have gone through, you know, anything even remotely like what we're going to hear about happened to King David, we'd be happy to make a statement like this, I guarantee you. So happy is actually a really great word because it, it really implies a, a, a good state. A, uh, a clean state. So um, last week when we talked about Thomas Merton, and for those of you who weren't here at the uh, about page five and six of your handout, the quote is in there from Merton's book, so you could look at that later on if you like. But um, he talked about the cheapening and the growing irrelevance of praise. Remember we talked about that, that everything is praise so nothing really is praised. And, and then we use all of this superlative language and then we run out of stuff to describe God because everything's super and great and awesome and you know, so what is God then? Oh, he's an awesome God. Yeah, yeah, that was an awesome movie too that I saw, right? And we hear this and I was listening to my daughter this week in terms of uh, my 12-year-old daughter really majors in superlatives. So, uh, you know, you, you sort of get the idea about, uh, about this. And it just, uh, yes? I couldn't help but think about that and watch the Olympics, you know? Yeah. Everything, every contest is miraculous. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The four by one. That was going on for, you know, just the noise and shouting and cheering. And I'm going, you know, you praise the Lord like that. Exactly. Yeah. It was amazing. Amazing what was going on. And when you go to beach volleyball, by the way, getting sidetracked, thank you, um, they have actually people in the stands that are there pretty much just to cheer. They're, they're not, you know, from the home countries, and they're getting up there, man, and they got their little thunder sticks, and they're making a racket, and it just, it's just really interesting to be praising and cheering for somebody you don't even really know. You're, you're kind of there, and I think they're, they, they kind of seated the crowds a little bit. Um, giving them the thunder sticks and telling them to yell no matter what because I particularly have seen it in beach volleyball where it's interesting to see the, they every once in a while do a shot of the crowd, you know, and it, it's clear they're not from the, from the countries that are represented on the court. Anyway, that's an aside. Um, in the same way that Merton talks about praise being cheapened, um, I think there is a sense, and I was thinking about this this week and thinking about... Um, what we're going to talk about tonight. Wisdom is kind of like that too, isn't it? 
wisdom is pretty watered down nowadays. You know, you hear these little pithy statements, oh, that, oh that's so wise, or oh, here's a little bit, bit of wisdom taken from a, you know, a card, or you know, this other thing. And I mean, what passes nowadays for wisdom in many cases is pretty, pretty weak. It's pretty paled down like a, you know, a two-week-old tea bag, you know, making tea with that stuff. It's just not, it just doesn't have something with it. And um, I would go so far as to say, I'd submit this to you, that if you took characters like King David out of the Older Testament and, and you, you sort of expose them to what is, quote, wisdom today in large part, and let's say within our culture, they wouldn't even recognize it. Because it, the same thing has happened, what we call wisdom, sort of the, the knowledge of the ages, things that come from experience and, and that are profound. That, you, know, you, just don't, you just don't see that, you know. And we could go on on that topic for a long way. You're probably thinking in your own minds of, of stuff that you know from our popular culture that, you know, it's, it's just so topical. You know, this is what I call veneer. It's an inch deep and miles wide. Yes? Do you think part of what they called wisdom we would now call knowledge? Because, like, I've been reading in First Kings, um, and it talks about how Solomon, after God blessed him with lots of wisdom, then he started Mm -hmm. No, I, I wouldn't say. I actually think we've, we've sort of turned that on its head, particularly since, let's say, talking late 80s, early 90s with the, with the boom of, of what was called then the information age. I think we equate information with knowledge. And I think we do that a lot. I think we have a real cultural bias where we, get, we compile a bunch of information and we think we know something. And, and a lot of times we don't even know how to properly use that information within a context or we just gather a lot of information. And I've, I've just happened to have seen it. This is just an aside, a personal comment. But I think I've seen it even in the church at large where there's a lot of information. Let me, let me get some information about this book in the Bible or this character and then now I, now I have knowledge. Well, what, what is the application for your life where it's real? What is the application for somebody you know? Well, no, no, I just know this stuff. And, and so I think there is a tendency to, to confuse uh, information for knowledge, but knowledge certainly is the base, I think, for some sort of knowledge is the base for wisdom as opposed to the other way around. Okay. And, and there, again, there's, there's sort of a head knowledge, and then what the Psalms really are about, isn't it, is heart knowledge. The Psalms are all about stuff that people learned in their heart that's really deep-rooted and profound. And that, that's a whole different kind of thing. And then that gives root to wisdom. Um, so as I was thinking about wisdom, and we take this first statement, what, what David is doing here in, in Psalm 32, right off the bat in verses 1 and 2, he's just making a pronouncement, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So right off the bat, it's a pronouncement. This is, is kind of the way he's laying it out there. And you know, one of the things that happens, and again, I was thinking about this this week, um, wisdom has become so suspect in our culture today that, you know, a lot of times our first reaction is to, is to say, well, how do you know that? Where do you, where do you get that from? Because we, you know, it's sort of the cheapening of it is also 
accustomed us to, to question it. And, uh, you know, I, I turned 55 this year, and that's supposedly around the time when you've acquired a certain degree of wisdom. You know, you've lived a while, and you've lived through a lot of things. And, and one of the things my wife and I do is we coach the, uh, the, the leaders. There's a, a huge group of people in our church in their 20s, and they have, there's a number of small groups that they're in. And so we, we coach, kind of oversee the leaders of those small groups. And it all, it's just fascinating to me... Um, you know, to have these interactions, because, you know, we're, my wife and I are probably the age of their parents on some levels, you know, so it's, it's always really interesting to see. And in some cases, it's not as true now because we've had a year working together and there's been a trust built up. But I think initially we got a lot of the, how do you know that? Or, you know, where are you coming from? You know, you'd say something, you'd, you know, you'd see it and you'd make a comment. And, and you know, again, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't confrontational. It's just, it's just an outgrowth of culture to kind of say, well, you know, how do I know that's true? Or, you know, how, what, what's the source for your wisdom? And um, I was thinking about this old movie. Some of you have heard me teach and speak before. You know I just love movies. So one of my favorites is one some of you may recognize. It's kind of a real old movie. It's a, it's a Western takeoff on uh, uh, Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. It's called A Magnificent Seven. It's an old classic Western. And there's a scene in there where there's a young Mexican guy who wants to be like the, these guys are modern day samurai, they're, they're gunslingers, and this town hires them to chase away these bandits, these Mexican bandits. So there's kind of a wannabe, you know, gunslinger, he's a, he's a Mexican from nearby, and so he's trying to impress all these American guys who are good with guns. And, and so he comes in one night, and, and they've chased away the bandits the first time, and he starts talking, well this and well they're gonna do that and and so the guy who's kinda of the unofficial mayor of the town he's standing there and says how do you know and then the guy said makes another statement how do you know and then he makes another statement he says how do you know and so finally the kid takes off it's one of those typical you know stereotypical you know Mexican sombreros the big giant kind and you know this is all it's all very stereotypical now you look at it and you go anyway so he takes off his hat and he flings it on the table and he says because I've been up there to their camp. And he had gone up to the camp and spy. And the point being, he knew, not because he was guessing, but because he'd been up there. And he'd stood among the people and had a, an implicit knowledge. He was standing right next to the leader of, of this group of bandits, listening to him complain about, you know, all these different things. So he knew because he had firsthand knowledge. And so as we look at Psalm 32, and we're going to go in a slightly different direction here, what we're going to explore is how it is David knew these things. And what is the root of David's wisdom as expressed here starting at the beginning of Psalm 32. So I'm going to get my Bible. Um, Skip, are those only New Testaments? No. They're, they're, okay. We're going to go to the book of 2 Samuel. We'll give you a few minutes to... Uh, Find that. Second Samuel, if you know where Psalms is, keep going to the left. I'm cheating because I put a post-it in mine. Second Samuel chapter 11. When you go to the left, is that before or Before. Oh, that's right. Yeah, okay, sorry. Yeah. Go to Psalms and turn left. Before Psalms. Okay. 2 Samuel 11. 
when I was thinking about preparing for this, by the way, while you're getting there, um, I was thinking, you know, maybe I'll give the, uh, the Carlos paraphrase edition. And then I thought, no, you know what, better if we just go there. So you can see the story yourself and you don't think I filled in any, any cracks. And I'll tell you, it was really hilarious. Um, I was down about, um, about a week or so ago, down visiting family, and we all got together at this restaurant and was talking with my mom and aunt. And my aunt was telling me that, uh, my aunt is a member of the Roman Catholic Church, but she would started to go to this Baptist church to go to Bible study. I said, oh, Bible study, really interesting. How are you liking it? Oh, it's great. So I'm talking to my aunt about Bible study, and she says, you know, your mom tells me that you teach at your church. And I said, yeah, actually, I have a Bible study coming up. And she says, well, what are you going to teach about? And I, so I was kind of telling her. And she goes, oh, really? I said, yeah, well, you know, it's going to come out of this story. So my mom says, what story is that? Why don't you tell me? And we're sitting here, you know, it's kind of an open-air restaurant, so it was cool. So we're sitting at the restaurant. So I start telling my mom the story of King David and Bathsheba as found here in 2 Samuel 11. And my mom's just incredulous. She's going, that's in the Bible? That story? That happened? It's really in there? I said, Mom, trust me, you know. Go, go pull that old Bible you got on the shelf up there gathering dust and I guarantee you'll find it, you know. But she couldn't believe it. And I bet you people who are not exposed at all to the Bible, if you recounted this story, you know, and it gets, you know, these are the kind of things that make me believe in the Bible. I mean, what book that's supposed to, you know, promote a faith is going to put stories like this in there, you know? And this is a classic one. This is one of the classic biblical stories. So let's go here, uh, and, and I'll just read it through for you. Uh, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So here's the first problem right there. Okay, what does it say? At the time when kings go out to battle, where was David? Well, he was hanging back, you know. Yeah, he was in a place he probably shouldn't have been. Rather than being at the front of the army, he was, you know, back at home, hanging out. Then it happened one evening. What's that? I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, well, I won't touch that. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, which is where you went for fresh air. And, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. Okay, problem number two. Okay, look, don't linger. Okay, happened to see he's up on the roof, he's enjoying some air, and of course, no doubt the king had the tallest house, right? So the king probably from the top of his roof could look down at everything. So here he looks down and what does he see? A woman, obviously nude, bathing on her roof. And he doesn't turn away or say, I shouldn't be looking at that. No, what does he do? He goes and inquires after her. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. That's about as concise a telling of an affair as you can get. You know, that's about, what, two, two sentences and pretty much tells the whole tale. Leave it to your, well, we won't leave it to your imagination, but suffice to say it tells the story right there, okay? David doesn't waste any time. He immediately moves to this, this affair. 
Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, one of his captains, and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Now, by the way, why was he asking this guy? Couldn't he have sent for his commander or had an emissary from the commander? Why did, why did, he, why did he pick Uriah? To bring Uriah back from the field to tell him about the war. Cover up. Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. What was the plan? Okay, he's back from the war. Why don't you go back and, you know, spend some time with your wife, you know? That'll cover this whole thing all up. Wash your feet is symbolic for clean, cleansing yourself from, you know, all of the, the blood and dirt and everything you brought from the war. So it's, it's a symbolic sort of way. But basically, you know, clean up and go have some time with your wife. Look, I'm going to send you with a gift package, you know? And here's all this food, probably wine and all this other stuff. The whole stage was set. But Uriah, being the, the loyal subject of the king that he was, he wouldn't go. Why wouldn't he go? So he's sitting at the, the, the king's door. David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why, why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And do you see the contrast in character there? What was David doing? Where was he supposed to be? It was the time of kings, right? He was supposed to be out on the field. So then he tries to get Uriah to kind of do the same thing. Go on down there. And Uriah says, no. You know, my character will not let me go and celebrate and do all of this while my comrades are out there knee-deep in, in blood and, and in the battle. So he refuses to go. And it's a direct rebuke. It's a direct contrast that is painted here between David's character at the moment or at that time and Uriah. And we see it very clearly, don't we? Where was David? And, and for all the trouble, yes. Okay, very good. Good point. Excellent. Okay. All right. Now Uriah didn't know that though, because he wasn't there apparently when she when she had bathed, but yeah. Okay. So he's setting up a stage here, isn't he? He tries to do it the easy way to cover his tracks. And let's because this is going to become relevant when we start when we go back to Psalm 32, look at the behavior. Guess what? This isn't atypical. In many respects, there's aspects of all of us in David's behavior. We cover up. We hide. We tell a little story, maybe. We, we self-justify. 
We all do it. We're all, we've all been guilty of it. That's what's great about the story is it's, it's more a story about human nature and how we respond when we do something that, you know, we know. I mean, let's, did, does anybody here believe that David didn't know what he was doing? That he didn't know it was wrong? Anybody? Anybody think maybe he just like got hit on the head and went a little crazy for a few days or something? Uh-huh. Sure. But I mean, I, it's hard for me to even imagine thinking in very practical terms about the, about the scripture and about the story that he didn't know exactly what was going on right from the get-go. Right from the beginning. He knew what he was doing. Okay. But he was a king. Hey! King, he has privileges. Okay. Then David said to Uriah, verse 12, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. Oh boy, okay, so the other didn't work. Okay, let's get the guy drunk. <laughs> and it, you know, it says very clearly here, and he made him drunk. Okay, so I mean, of course you could say, I can you force somebody, but you know, and at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. By the way, just, uh, just as an aside on that, um, I'm, I've kind of, kind of an amateur historian about, uh, you know, the old, old sailing ships in old days. And, and, you know, when it says he made him get drunk, one of the, one of the customs in the, in the old ships, like let's say like the, the English Navy around the, the time of Napoleon, uh, you know, 1800s or so, the captain would invite different people uh, into his cabin and there'd be kind of a feast and there'd be drinking and, you know, giving toasts and stuff. And it was expected, you know, out of courtesy to the captain and as a sign of respect that you would drink. Even if you had to run out and, you know, get sick five minutes later, you never refused as long as the bottle kept passing and I, I've read many a story talking about the number of bottles that passed and different people and everything else so the idea that the king could make this guy get drunk actually you know out of respect he'd have to keep drinking as long as the bottle was flowing and the wine was going so that's more likely what happened it wasn't like somebody you know put a funnel in his mouth or something but out of respect for the king he, he could not refuse and so then he got drunk so that's kind of a backstory there for that um, and at evening he went to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Okay, so that plan failed. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Yeah. Okay, that's some cold stuff there, man. Why didn't he read it? Hmm? Why didn't he read it? Wasn't supposed to read it. Right? If it was a sealed message to the commander, given all that we'd already seen just in this little passage about Uriah's character, that kind of a guy wouldn't pop open a confidential message and read it. No way. Okay, so he doesn't. No, you're right. He carries his own death message okay, to the commander. So it was, while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. 
Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of uh, Jerubathes, Seth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall, so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So you're getting the drift here? How did you accomplish this thing I told you to accomplish? Well, I did it this way. Why did you risk all these lives? Well, we had to make it believable. It had to look very real to accomplish what you told me to do to get this man killed. That's basically the story. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archer shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. Okay? That's really cold, isn't it? Okay? Hey, whatever had to happen to get this guy killed, even if there's a lot of what we call today collateral damage, hey, it's the way it works, right? Who knows? It goes against the sword, devours one as well as another. So I guess that's what had to happen. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Is that ever an understatement? What do you think? Yeah. I love sometimes you find, particularly in the Older Testament, you find some just absolute understatements. You know, What David did displeased the Lord. Oh, yeah. You think? Okay. So that is the story of David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11. You can tell your friends that that story actually does exist in the Bible. The reason we read it, it's, it's absolutely essential to understanding the context of Psalm 32. Absolutely essential. Because if you ask yourself upon reading, blessed is the man, blessed is he, and you say, well, how do you know that? I know. I know. Because I committed a pretty dramatic sin. And let me, let me tell you what happened. I'm going to give you the backstory for this wisdom, this pronouncement of wisdom that I've just given you. Okay? This isn't something he thought up. It isn't a statement or a pronouncement of wisdom that he thought might sound good to the people. So it's a good line. Let me put it in this psalm while I'm, you know, I'm going to write a song here. Sounds like a really good line. No, it wasn't that way at all. It was based on real and hard experience.
Now one of the things that David does in the first two verses there, when we talked about blessed being to be happy, he talks about the, um, this happiness being based and only being able to be found in God. That's, that, though he doesn't say it overtly, that's, what, that's essentially what David is saying. This kind of blessing, this kind of happiness can only be found in God. Why? There's two reasons. Two things we see in, in the first two verses. First is, because God forgives our transgressions. That's the first reason why we should be happy. Now many of us have experienced in our lives, in different circumstances, a lack of forgiveness. Now, and some of, it, some of those circumstances may have been extremely bitter. And I, there's probably a lot of us here who know exactly what it feels like to not be forgiven. To be genuinely sorry or remorseful about something and forgiveness is withheld. And if you will, held over us like a sword. Okay? Now, in this case, we're talking about a transgression, or we'll use the word sin, simultaneous there, or use them in the same way. And we're really talking about a violation of a law, a command, or a duty. So what law was broken when uh, what David did? Several, huh? Right, okay. A few of the big ones were broken in that incident that we just read about. God's laws or commands. Okay. And there were a few others actually. What was David's duty? His duty was actually be out with his armies and he, was, he had been shirking his duty. So there was, also, there was also a transgression in the terms of where he was and what he was doing when this thing started. He would actually, he had, because there, he, had a, he had a commitment and a duty to go out in the time when kings went out with their army and be out there with his men and he wasn't there. So that was also another form of transgression. And remember that God had given King David to the people of Israel. So as God's, if you will, appointed, he had certain duties and responsibilities under God to fulfill. So it went more than just the sin of, of committing adultery with, uh, with Bathsheba. There were, you know, these other things were also going on. Suffice to say, he had plenty of stuff in his account that wasn't good. Right? Okay. Now, forgiveness here, in the sense that we're talking about, and we see it pronounced in the first two verses, really means that the obligatory punishment or penalty for our transgression is canceled. That's what the term here means. And that's something I think most of us understand. You do something wrong, there's going to be a price to be paid. There's going to be some punishment, there'll be a penalty, whatever, a fine. You know, thinking of it even in legal terms today. You get a ticket, you got to pay the fine, right? So there's going to be a price to be paid for this violation. Now that has nothing to do with consequences, that's separate. But first, let's just talk about the penalty or the punishment. And so forgiveness in this sense means what was supposed to happen as a result of the sin, David's sin, was basically canceled out. And that's what David's talking about. 
Now, for most of us, if, unless we really stop and think about it, it's pretty hard to get our minds around the penalty for that, that story we just read being canceled, doesn't it? It sort of crosses the line of what we think is forgivable. Or maybe even it should be forgivable. Think about it for a minute. Because I bet most of us would admit lurking back there in the back of our mind, there are some unforgivable or nearly unforgivable sins or things. That when they, they get on the ledger, they, you know, they, those can't cancel out. That's, that's, too, that's too much. No, I'll let you think about them. Okay? They could be all kinds of things. But most people would consider murder... You know, otherwise, why do we have a death penalty? That's, that's just, a, just a very short example, okay? Most people would consider murder an, an unpardonable sin. By that, I mean the penalty must be paid. Okay? The penalty must be paid. And in this case, we're talking about the penalty of these sins being completely wiped out or canceled. That is for, that's the kind of forgiveness that David is talking about in Psalm 32. Okay. So yeah, if that was a true and he lived in a death penalty, if Israel was a death penalty country, that would have warranted the death penalty. And the death, not only did the death penalty get canceled, no jail time, walk away free. That's the, that's the level of forgiveness that we're talking about here that, that God practices. And I'm making a point of it because sometimes it's really hard for us to get our minds around that much forgiveness. It just doesn't, it just doesn't compute. It doesn't equate. It's hard for us to believe in it. Now, why? We serve a perfect God. And in God's perfection, no sin or transgression can be left unpunished. Okay? You can't have imperfection before a perfect God. So punishment for transgressions is obligatory. That there must be a punishment. This is a really key concept. This is kind of basic, a, a different take on basic Christianity. But that's, that's where we have to come from here. A perfect God cannot tolerate any sin. There can be none of that around a perfect God. Therefore, there must be a penalty or a price paid. We'll go there in a little bit, but just keep that thought in your minds. Okay? So what, what David is saying here, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. whose sin is covered. Blessed is the person who no matter what they did, upon repenting of their sin and asking God's forgiveness, it's wiped away. Yes? We're going to see that, yeah. We'll, be, we'll, talk, we'll talk about that in a little bit, yes. He didn't immediately, and we're, that's where we're going to see. We're going there. 
Okay, that's okay. No, 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 that's good. That's a good question. Because now you'll be watching, see? Because he comes to this here in the next few verses. So, the activating point is repentance and asking God for forgiveness. And as we're going to see here in a little bit, we're just setting the stage piece by piece. That's not an easy process. So we're not just saying it lightly. Say, oh, yeah, I repent, no problem. You know, just, okay, God, forgive me, please. Come on. Let's move on. No. There's, there's a lot more involved in it. But do we understand the concept? Right? Transgressions, punishment, a penalty, and the idea that that's what forgiveness, just completely taking that away is what forgiveness means. Now, not only are we forgiven, but it says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Or, as it says in the, uh, the NLT version there, whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt. How would you like that? How would you like that? God completely eliminates the transaction from our account as if it never happened. That's what's going on here. That's what, that's what David is talking about. That's why, like I said at the start, who's not happy about that? Blessed is, yeah, you bet, a clean, completely clean slate. Like a driving record for all the accidents you might have had, wiped out, you know. Every time you commit an error, no problem, it's clean. Perfect driver. Look at my record. It's perfect. Now, I had an experience with this, just to give you an idea. Some of you probably have your own anecdotes. Um, a number of years back, um, when I started, I first went out as a consultant. I was on my own. And uh, though I am a financial person, it was kind of the old physician healed thyself thing, I was really poor about accounting for my taxes. And so for a number of years, I didn't pay the proper amount of taxes. I was self-employed, you know, and did this. Anyway, eventually caught up with me. And um, the IRS went back and opened like seven years. And then, you know, as many of you may have heard, they, you know, or seen, they, they not only assess the tax, then they do interest all the way back to the original date. And then they do a penalty on this other thing. And then there's an interest, like the interest compounds on the penalty. So uh, all said and done, I think I owed probably, you know, I'm going to say about 100 to 125 thousand um, dollars for for a certain period of time. Um, so the story ties in here because part of I firmly believe part of coming through this was coming to the people who were around us at the time in our church, and and at that time we were we were leading a small group. We came to our group and asked for prayer laid out the whole situation. We had one evening dedicated to nothing but that. Laid it all out openly in front of people. They began to pray for us. And well, one, one way and another, God began to work through it. And eventually, um, we, we were able to do what's called an offer and compromise. We paid cents on the dollar. Still a lot of money. And money I didn't have. But suffice to say, we got out from under that. A way was provided to get the money. And, you know, that went on. But the reason I mention it here is that... Um, you know, through part of the process, they put tax liens on your credit record. And those things stay there. They stay there. They must stay for at least seven years. After that, you have to actually work to get 
the different credit reporting agencies to take them off. Okay? So when we're talking here about wiping our sins clean and giving you a clean slate, I always think of that story because wouldn't it have been great if as soon as I paid the, the, the thing and the liens were essentially satisfied, they went off the books. Now, in God's great provision, the year after, the year immediately after I got those off the books, we, we had a, an opportunity to buy the house that we live in currently, and I was able to do so with a clean record because we had purged the, uh, you know, the old tax lien stuff off our record the year before. So if had those been on there, there's no way we would have got, nobody would have financed us for the house. And it had been enough years and time passed. So again, understanding, for me it's a real clean, clear way of looking at what a clean slate means. Okay? And think of things that we've done. We ourselves keep our own slates, don't we? I bet most of us, if we thought about it, we could probably go home tonight and make a list of stuff that we think still out there. On our, on our quote, account. And I'm here to tell you tonight that the kind of forgiveness that David is talking about and the God that we serve is a God who's wiped your slate clean even though you haven't realized it. Everyone who comes before God with a repentant heart and asks forgiveness is given that clean slate. As was David, in spite of all of what he did and how horrendous we thought his sins were. So here's, um, here's what the transaction looks like, being a financial guy. Okay. There's some sin or transgression on our part that goes on the account, just like David. We repent. Now, we're going to talk about the timing of this repentance in a moment. And that is, we turn away from our sin and back towards God. Now, some of us, I am one of them. There have been areas in my life where I've had to turn a bunch of times and the same thing. I just keep trying. I keep asking God for His grace that I, that I wouldn't quit. And in some cases, God has given me great deliverance from something over time. I've never been a person, honestly, who's gotten hit by the lightning bolt and changed overnight. Maybe that's just, you know, that, maybe that's just who God's made me, but, okay. Once we go through this process of willfully returning and in repentance to God, our sin or transgression is forgiven. So the debt is canceled. And then finally, not only is the debt canceled, but our account is wiped clean and we get a fresh start. I put that up there because this is absolutely critical. If we're living, and we're going to see this in a moment, if we are living under the oppression of sins we have committed, that we have confessed to God, there's, you know, we got, we got a problem. Because that's not God's intent. God's intent is not for us to live that way. God's already forgiven it. We took it there before and placed it before God. It's forgiven. And the slate is clean no matter what you might think. No matter how much you might think you deserve it. The slate is wiped clean. 
Moreover, um, it tells us there in the verse that there's, how does it say? In whose spirit there is no deceit. Okay? Now there's a difference between guilt and deceit. Was David guilty? Yeah. Okay. For a season, was he deceitful? Absolutely. You don't get any much more deceitful than that. Okay. But eventually, as we're going to see, we're going to take a break in a minute or two, but eventually as we're going to see after the break, David left his deceitfulness and confessed his sins to God. And there was a tremendous, there was a tremendous breakthrough that, uh, that came from that. Okay? And what we mean by deceit here in the context of Psalm 32 and the way we're looking at this is basically trying to run and hide from God. Now when you think about it logically, isn't that nonsensical? Where in the universe can you hide from God, first of all? And if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis and the story of Adam and Eve, they were, quote, hiding in the garden because they'd done something they knew they shouldn't have done. Where were you going to hide? Where are we really going to hide from God? Under your covers, right. Okay. Where are you going to hide? Let's leave it there and we'll come back and we're going to talk a little bit about that. So let's take a break, 10 minutes, and then we'll come back and, uh, and, and go on.